This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. From The Recount, I'm Rena Ninen, and you're listening to The Recount Daily Pod. Today's Monday, August 16th. My biggest concern is that Afghanistan turns into, uh, once again, a magnet for foreign terrorist fighters. That was terrorism expert Colin Clark speaking on what's at stake in Afghanistan. A lot happening there over the past 24 hours. We're going to have a deep dive into that a little bit later. But first, your morning headlines. We begin with COVID. The U.S. now accounts for more than one-fifth of the world's total COVID-19 cases for the first time since February, when vaccines were not yet widely available. That's according to USA Today. Cases are rising in 46 states, with Florida, Hawaii, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Oregon breaking all-time case count records. Many hospitals in the South, where COVID continues to surge, are now at or nearing capacity. In Houston, over 600 patients are waiting for either a general hospital bed or an ICU bed. NIH Director Dr. Francis Collins warned on Fox News that the current wave is only getting worse. I will be surprised if we don't cross 200,000 cases a day in the next couple of weeks, and that's heartbreaking. The CDC had announced last week that immune-compromised people were now eligible for a booster. On Sunday, they said they will decide over the next couple of weeks about offering booster shots to healthcare workers, nursing home residents, and older Americans. They've not yet weighed in on whether or when all Americans will be eligible. We now turn to Afghanistan. The focus this morning remains on evacuating the thousands of Americans living in Afghanistan and expediting the visa process for vulnerable Afghans who qualify for special immigrant visas. Those also number in the thousands. They must first pass security clearances to make it to the U.S. Over the next 48 hours, the U.S. Defense Department announced it will expand the U.S. security force to nearly 6,000. Earlier on Sunday, President Ashraf Ghani fled the country by helicopter, saying on video that the Taliban have won with the judgment of their swords and guns and are now responsible for the honor, property and self-preservation of their countrymen. 
Meanwhile, a Taliban spokesman told Al Jazeera those Afghans who worked with the government and military will be offered amnesty. The United Nations Security Council scheduled an emergency meeting for Monday. U.S. troops were initially sent to Afghanistan to dismantle al-Qaeda after 9-11. I spent years in the Middle East and even embedded with U.S. troops in Iraq. It was always difficult to see what would happen when U.S. forces would train up local military and civilians and then eventually withdraw. Quite often, those gains would disappear once the U.S. left. Two decades of work in Afghanistan evaporated in days. What are the lessons from Afghanistan, Iraq? How does it affect our own security at home? We took a deep dive with terrorism expert Colin Clark, Director of Policy and Research at the Sufan Group. This interview originally aired on August 2nd. Colin, welcome. Thanks for having me. So what was the U.S. trying to accomplish in Afghanistan? Well, I think we've never actually had a coherent strategy from day one that's been part of our problem. After being attacked on 9-11, the initial impetus was to destroy and dismantle al-Qaeda. That happened relatively quickly, at least in terms of destroying al-Qaeda's infrastructure in Afghanistan, pushing its remaining fighters across the border into Pakistan. And I think at that point, we were kind of looking around for targets to strike. And the mission quickly morphed into defeating the Taliban, which is, as you know, different than al-Qaeda. The Taliban are Afghans, they're ethnic Pashtuns, and really a significant portion of, of the country. So to, to say that we were going to defeat the Taliban, move the goalposts back, and totally changed the mission, which had been, at least in the early stages, focused on al-Qaeda. You know, the war in Afghanistan has been going on for almost 20 years. It's killed 2,200 Americans, 38,000 Afghanis. It's cost the U.S. taxpayer nearly a trillion dollars. President Biden announced, you know, the troops will be gone by August 31st. Was it worth it? It depends who you ask. It's a really tough question. If you fought over there, and watched your friends die, you might have one perspective. I'm a lifelong civilian, although I did spend time in a deployed environment in Kabul, uh, working for General McMaster when he was a one-star. I remember coming home after being in Afghanistan for several months, and two weeks later, Osama bin Laden was killed. And I remember being pretty optimistic that things were going in the right direction. Ten years later, I can say that I no longer feel optimistic. In fact, I'm very concerned about what's going to happen in the immediate aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal. You know, I spent time in Iraq as a journalist after the U.S. invasion. And one of the great difficulties I've noticed is there's a great deal of investment on behalf of U.S. and coalition partners to get their troops to stand up. And the moment you start to pull away, it's like everything falls apart. doesn't matter how many years, how many dollars of investment. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, people have different theories. Is it the will to fight, the lack of confidence that comes with not having a superior military kind of be your eyes and ears and have your back? Is it the surprise that's generated from the quick rise of a group like the Islamic State that just comes and overpowers, as we saw with the Iraqis, and now, unfortunately, we're seeing with the Afghan National Security Forces? I think there's a range of factors that go into it. Although I will say, looking at Afghanistan in late 2021 or mid-2021 does you know, bring back memories of the U.S. troop withdrawal from Iraq, which was then, as it is in Afghanistan now, a calendar-based withdrawal, not a conditions-based withdrawal. What do you think is going to happen in Afghanistan with the withdrawal? Do you see all the gains lost after the pullout now? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think what we're likely to end up with is the Taliban running a significant portion of the country because the Taliban's never broken from Al-Qaeda. In fact, has never even pretended to. Al-Qaeda is going to have operational space to regrow its networks. I think the Islamic State uh, is going to do the same. And my, my biggest concern is that Afghanistan turns into, uh, once again, <laughs> a magnet for foreign terrorist fighters to flock not only from the region, but from further afield, including from the West. And we start seeing a replay of the mobilization we saw to Syria in 2011, 2012, 2013, et cetera. That's my big concern, is that this devolves into a hub for uh, Sunni jihadist fighters and, and foreign fighters. The U.S.-backed government of Afghanistan now only controls about 20% of territory. This is according to the Long War Journal. Do you believe U.S. intervention in Afghanistan was a failure? I think it's hard to point to any other outcome. I mean, you know, the United States has not achieved its mission. The U.S. has not destroyed al-Qaeda. It's significantly hampered al-Qaeda. It's disrupted al-Qaeda's networks. But now we're spiking the ball at the five-yard five line, to use a football analogy. We haven't completed the mission, and that's going to give al-Qaeda the breathing room it needs to resuscitate what have been kind of dormant networks to recruit, to spread propaganda, and in the worst case scenario, to rebuild external operations planning networks that could strike into the heart of the West, that we could end up seeing terrorist attacks planned from Afghanistan that occur on European, US, or other Western soil. And I think that's the, the nightmare scenario that a lot of people are thinking about. And I would just say, you know, outside of Afghanistan, there are two main reasons why I think the U.S. was unable to achieve its objectives. The first is Pakistan. We've never been able to figure out how to get the Pakistanis to deny sanctuary and safe haven to groups like the Taliban, uh, Al-Qaeda, and, and other jihadists. The second is very early on in the conflict in Afghanistan, we turned and pivoted to Iraq, and, and a significant amount of resources and, and bandwidth were devoted to that conflict. And so, you know, in the early stages, we were distracted. That allowed the Taliban to kind of resurge, and we've never been able to kind of get our arms around how to deal with that since. What do you say to people who say, we can't be there for decades and decades and decades? We've been there for 20 years. Isn't that enough? I'd like to know what those people think about U.S. troops in Germany, Japan, and South Korea. We've been there for even far longer, and I don't hear people getting bent out of shape that we need to bring U.S. troops home from Germany. They're there for a reason, logistical and, and deterrence-wise. So I don't see why Afghanistan is any different, particularly when there's an active threat. We have an active threat in al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and we're withdrawing. I see the withdrawal as a way for President Biden, who I've been very supportive of, for him to score domestic political points by saying he ended an endless war. Outside of that, I don't see what it accomplishes. Should we rethink boots on the ground in countries like Germany or Japan? I don't know. I think that I'm a big believer in uh, a strong America as being uh, a force for good in the world. Yes, we've made a lot of missteps, uh, Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, but U.S. force posture in precarious regions, in fragile states, near ungoverned territories, on these fault lines that exist in the world, having a U.S. military presence there is a good thing. It's, it reassures our allies and it deters our adversaries. I'm very concerned about what happens when we pull back from all these places 
and things start falling apart, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to then reinsert forces back to these same places. You've been watching this region for a very long time. What do you see happening in the next couple of years? I think Afghanistan's going to descend into all-out civil war. I think it's going to have spillover effects to countries on Afghanistan's borders. I think it's going to bring in regional powers that are all going to sponsor their own proxies and patrons. It's going to really destabilize the the region more broadly and could very well lead to more acts of international terrorism. But that's where I see this going. We've got to take a short break, but we're going to be back with Colin Clark on the Recount Daily Pod. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome back to The Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. We're here with Colin Clark, Director of Policy and Research at the Sufan Group. 
want to ask you a little bit about intelligence gathering. While there have been boots on the ground for 20 years, the CIA had a role in Afghanistan for more than 30 years, dating back to aiding rebels, fighting the Soviet Union from 1979 to 1989. What do you think this means for U.S. intelligence gathering? And what do you think the CIA has learned about intelligence gathering over those 30 years? It, it makes it much more difficult to collect, to run human sources, signals intelligence, human intelligence, all the things that we rely on to keep Americans safe. I think that becomes far more challenging, whether we're running CT ops from across the border in Pakistan or somewhere else in Central Asia, it's almost like fighting with one hand tied behind your back. I think what the CIA has learned is you need a presence on the ground to maintain robust intelligence, and that will be without that. What's the biggest lesson learned from Afghanistan? Was it worth the American blood and the money that was poured into it? I think the biggest lesson is to not get distracted from your objective. If you go into a conflict saying it's to destroy this transnational terrorist network, do that and don't leave until you do it. You can make the argument that the invasion of Iraq was maybe the worst U.S. foreign policy decision of all time, frankly. It took our eye off Afghanistan and it essentially created AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which then went on to become ISIS. That wasn't there before. And Saddam wasn't a good guy by any stretch. But if you look at the state of the Middle East right now, where you've got active Al-Qaeda and Islamic State affiliate and branches in the Levant and the Arabian Peninsula all over the region, and you've got this kind of sectarian conflict between the Saudis and the Iranians, you know, the Middle East is in worse shape than it was 20 years ago. And I think for those of us who have studied all the, the structural factors that led to 9-11, that's a scary thought. President Biden has announced that U.S. combat troops will pull out of Iraq by the end of this year. Forces have been there for almost 20 years now. There are reports that ISIS has regrouped. It's also reclaiming territory. What's your biggest concern with the pullout in Iraq? Uh, my biggest concern is, again, ISIS being able to put together some kind of capability to successfully execute external operations in the West. We saw what happened in November 2015 in Paris, in March 2016 in Brussels, in many other places around the world where ISIS tentacles have reached from Sri Lanka to Egypt to the United States. And my concern is that by taking pressure off of these groups and giving them the room to maneuver, that we allow them to rebuild their capability and then end up having to go back and, and fight again instead of finishing the job in the first place. And this isn't something that's easy. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. Uh, but I do think it's critical to U.S. national security. What does the terrorism fight look like for the rest of the world right now, Northern Africa, Europe, elsewhere? What's your biggest concern? Well, what I've been monitoring most closely is the growth of Al-Qaeda and IS affiliates in sub-Saharan Africa, from the Sahel in Western Africa, across to the Horn in the east, all the way down to the southeastern Swahili coast in Mozambique, and even in Central Africa in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We're seeing a real growth and proliferation of jihadi groups. The op-tempo of attacks has spiked significantly. And in and around the Lake Chad region, we've seen uh, Islamic State affiliates moving pretty close to a model that looks something like governing territory again. Uh, and if that happens, you know, it has this galvanizing effect of bringing fighters from other countries to act as force multipliers and join this organization. Remember, success is sexy. When groups are perceived to have momentum, 
it brings in other fighters overnight, you could have the size of these groups increasing significantly. How likely do you believe an attack is on U.S. or European soil in the coming months or years? The threat's more diverse today in 2021 than it's been in the last two decades. If there's a th- if there is an attack on U.S. soil or on European soil, it may not be from a jihadi group. It could well be from a far right extremist group. It could be from any other number of individuals or groups motivated by all the ideologies we see today. Uh, you know, left wing, incel. There's so many different threads out there right now that I think it's a real challenge to policymakers and to counterterrorism analysts who have been almost exclusively focused on Salafi jihadi groups for the last 20 years. That's now changed. Nothing has uh, fallen off the plate. Those threats remain. We just have other threats on top of those to consider. So, you know, and then I'd layer on top of that the COVID-19 pandemic, which I think is a real wild card. But I do think it was a boon for recruitment for terrorist groups of all kinds as everyone was home, spending a lot of time online, and in some cases, really imbibing significant amounts of terrorist propaganda. What does the next American terrorist look like? I think that's the hard part. There's no typology. There is no next American terrorist. It's people that look like me, people, right? Like uh, right now, if you look at the main threat, it's domestic. It's folks that are far-right extremists. It could be QAnon adherents. It could be racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, people that want to create a white ethno state in the United States. It could be a jihadi attack, uh, whether a homegrown violent extremist or someone from overseas, as we saw in Pensacola in, in late 2019, where we had an al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula-linked attack carried out by uh, a Saudi Air Force Lieutenant Mohammed al-Shamrani. It, it could be from anywhere. And I think that's, again, what makes counterterrorism at this moment so difficult is the threat's not easy to categorize. So it's really, it's not a good place to be right now, I think, in 2021 in terms of the counterterrorism landscape. I hope I'm wrong. I try to be sober in my assessments. I hope that the way that I'm envisioning things playing out doesn't happen and doesn't come to fruition. But there's so many uncertainties right now that it definitely leaves me highly concerned. Colin, before you go, it's been almost 20 years since 9-11. Is there anything that you can point to was a success in the war on terrorism? The way that the United States has worked with its allies in in Europe, its Five Eye allies, the, the Australians, Canadians, Kiwis, and others, I think intelligence sharing and cooperation right? Necessity is the mother of invention. And so we were forced to reassess those relationships and to put some skin in the game and and to work with our partners overseas to make sure that 9-11 didn't happen again. We've actually been successful at building a worldwide counterterrorism infrastructure that by and large has kept Americans safe. Colin Clark, Director of Policy and Research at the Sufan Group. Colin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And now to the look ahead. Here's what else we're watching today. Relief efforts continue today after a 7.2 magnitude earthquake rocked Haiti on Saturday. The current death toll is well over 1,200 with thousands injured or missing. The search continues for survivors. Aftershocks are not the only thing Haiti has to worry about as Tropical Storm Grace is expected to pummel the region today, bringing with it the threat of mudslides. Meanwhile, the nation of 11 million remains in political turmoil after uncertainty following the assassination of its president back in July. 
Relief is coming for 42 million Americans who are enrolled in SNAP, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as food stamps. The Biden administration is set to announce later today the biggest long-term increase to the program in its entire history. The change is planned for October and increases the benefit amount by 25%. The average monthly benefit for a family of four is currently just under $500. The House Judiciary Committee will hold a hearing today on oversight of the Voting Rights Act. The goal is to discuss potential legislative responses to ongoing threats to voting rights. Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler said the panel is needed to prevent discriminatory practices in the redrawing of district lines post-census, as well as to stop the flood of discriminatory state laws being enacted across the country. Have a great day. We'll see you back tomorrow. This is the Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio. Our thanks to Colin Clark for being on the show. And if you like this episode, we hope you'll subscribe to the Recount Daily Pod and leave us a rating on the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Rena Ninen. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279. Or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.